Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're on the home stretch of this epistle, no doubt. And I'm loving the section that we're in. Really loved loved this whole series. Uh, there were some challenging parts, for sure. There still are a couple of challenging parts, but um, it's been so profitable to go through this book and see what God would say to us here. And this morning we're going to be considering verses 29 through 34, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 34. And I'm going to preach a message to you entitled, Resurrected to Righteousness. Resurrected to Righteousness. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 29, these are the words of God. Else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. If there's any message that needs special emphasis in the church today, I believe with all my heart that it is the message of the inevitable connection between Christian doctrine and Christian living. We, as the people of God, need to be reminded daily that it is what we believe that determines how we live. You simply cannot divorce doctrine from practice. You cannot divide theology from conduct. I have said this many times from the pulpit of this church, and I will continue to say it so long as the Lord gives me breath. God did not give us our theology so that we could hang it up on the wall and admire it. God gave us our theology so that it would transform the way that we live our lives. And I hope you don't mind me being this blunt with you this early in the sermon, but brothers and sisters, I'm just tired of those in the church. And let me say this, uh, I feel at more greater liberty to preach on and and scrutinize the, the, the pitfalls that we might face uh, more so than it's, you know, it's easy to sit here and preach on the pitfalls that another church down the road might have in their theology. And if I was worried about, uh, uh, worried about that, I would detail that. But, but when I think about what, what challenges do we face, what unique struggles are before us, I come to this point in which I'm just tired of those in the church who constantly run around and boast about how reformed they are and how Calvinistic they are when they don't have half as much zeal for living out a life that is consistent with the theology they brag about. I'm tired of seeing hats and t-shirts that say 1689 on them uh, when those who wear them haven't given two thoughts about what it means to actually be confessional, to actually hold to the document. Uh, I, wearing a t-shirt with John Calvin's face on it does not make you godly if you have no interest in actually living your life based upon the truth that he preached and lived for. And when we do these things, brothers and sisters, we reduce our theology to a marketing gimmick. We make it this cool club that you get to be in if you know the code words. But it doesn't matter how that theology actually impacts you. I was in the room in, in Atlanta, Georgia, when Paul Washer dropped the mic and said, we need men who won't just talk about the truth, 
but we'll say, I'm going to live it, and my church is going to live it, and we're going to actually do what this book says. Then he said this, because until then, you're just a little boy playing Reformation. And you, the hush fell in that room there in Atlanta, Georgia, when he said that from the pulpit. And he's exactly right. He's exactly right. And unless we're willing to, to live out the truth that we proclaim, if all we want to do is talk about it, we're just playing. We're just playing. It's just a game to us. And I'm afraid that's exactly what we have today, a bunch of little boys playing Reformation. Why? Because we have forgotten that our doctrine must affect the way we live our lives. And if it doesn't, then it isn't our doctrine. If you say you believe something, but it has no practical effect in your life, you don't really believe it. You must understand that there's no such thing as theoretical theology. All theology is practical. I mean, there's a category, you know, you have your systematic theology, your biblical theology, and then there's, a, there's some who make the case that we shouldn't call it practical theology because all theology is practical theology. But there's too many that, that want to say, well, keep it on paper, preacher, but don't dare apply it to my life. You know, you announce you're going to have a conference on the five points of Calvinism and you pack the house but you announce you're going to have a conference on reformed experiential piety. And you'll be doing good if 15 people show up. RBC E-Town, every quarter, they host a prayer convocation. And what they do at the prayer convocation is they just spend about four hours in prayer. It's just a prayer meeting. No preacher. No, no big-name speaker that comes in. Just uh, the pastors of the church, sometimes they'll ask others to bring a 15-minute devotional. I've, I've had the privilege of participating in that, but it's just a prayer meeting. And they, they have said to me, you know, it's very hard even to get our own church to be interested in faithfully attending this event. The Reformers and the Puritans and the particular Baptists were not just really smart men who wrote really big books and sat in their ivory tower studies and just thought about theology all day. No, they were men who lived their theology. That They were men who prayed their theology and who, who, who devoured their Bibles from whence came their theology. And they were men who were zealous to be godly. They were disciplined. They didn't waste their time on trying to be trendy and cool because they didn't care what the world thought about them. They wanted to be holy because the Lord their God is holy. And they were men and women who understood that their robust biblical doctrine was the pillar and the ground for the way they lived their lives. So yes, at this church, we make absolutely no apology for placing a major emphasis on doctrine and theology. We preach doctrine. We teach theology. We quote old dead guys. We use big words. We do all of the above. We recommend books and on and on. But not because we think Christian doctrine is more important than Christian conduct, but because we believe that our Christian doctrine will ultimately determine our Christian conduct. If we believe the doctrines of grace, we ought to be living lives that evidence the grace at God, of God at work within us. Amen. It's one thing, as one older, wiser man, I heard him say one time, he says, it's one thing to know the doctrines of grace. It's another thing to know the grace of the doctrine. Amen. You say, what does this have to do with our text? Well, I believe that it is this connection between belief and and behavior that Paul is driving home, especially in this text this morning. Paul is seeking to make the practical connection between doctrine and practice. As you know by now, there were some in the Corinthian church who were making a doctrinal objection. They were objecting to the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. And Paul has already shown them the theological consequences of such an awful denial. But now what he's going to do is he's going to show them the practical effect that denying the resurrection has upon the way we live the Christian life. 
Uh, These verses in chapter 15 are all about the effect that the doctrine of the resurrection has upon our practical godliness. So this sermon will be uh, heavy in application, especially as we get on into the text. And let me just say this to you. When uh, there is an application made from the Word of God that's consistent with the principles of the Word of God, you ought to receive it as the Word of God. So here's how I'm going to break this down. I'm going to give you three headings, and I'm going to show you three things from this text that are practical aspects of our Christian lives that are absolutely pointless, worthless, and meaningless without the doctrine of the resurrection. Okay? Number one, the first thing that hinges upon the resurrection, the first thing that's meaningless without the resurrection is our baptism. Baptism. It's no exaggeration to say that verse 29 has sparked great discussion among students of the Bible. Let me point out to you first that Paul begins with this word else, so it tells us he's, he's continuing on with his arguments for the resurrection. And then he says this, What shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Twice in this verse he talks about people that are baptized for the dead. This is one of those verses that makes you scratch your head and wonder what in the world does this mean? Nowhere else in the New Testament is there any reference to baptism for the dead, and Paul does not even slightly make an attempt to explain himself here. So Bible interpreters are really left with a exegetical quagmire here. One of the reasons why this is so hard uh, to interpret is because the Greek is actually extremely straightforward. No, con- nothing confusing about it. It literally says baptism for the dead. Okay, so what does it mean? Well, I sincerely hope that it's all right with you that I'm not going to spend the next three hours discussing the 57 different views of what this means uh, and, and giving you everybody in church history's opinion on this view. Uh, but I am going to give you the most prominent view or views of this verse, and then I'll tell you why I lean the way that I do, okay? So there's two things to keep in mind at the outset of this verse, Uh, and that is, number one, that this verse is referencing something that is obscure and mysterious to us, but not to Paul's original audience. So when he wrote to the Corinthians this language of baptism for the dead, uh, he just expected that he assumed that they knew exactly what he was talking about. We know that because he makes no attempt to explain himself. Secondly, whatever the correct interpretation of this verse is, it proves the resurrection. Okay, so however you want to interpret it, it proves the resurrection. That was actually the biggest thing that kind of helped me get to where I am on this view. Well, let me give you a couple of the positions on verse 29. The first is the, the and I, I've, I'm making up these terms, okay? So if you don't like them, that's fine. The first is the baptism by proxy view. The baptism by proxy view. Okay? That is that when Paul says baptism for the dead, he means that there are Christians who would be baptized by proxy on behalf of those who died before they had a chance to be baptized. They think that Paul is arguing in verse 29 from a pagan custom that was practiced by the Corinthians. Now, part of me, probably part of you, don't you wish it was that easy? You're worried about grandma's soul because she, you know, she didn't, we didn't really know if she was a Christian. And so just to be sure, let's get baptized for grandma and everything's all right, right? Well, uh, it's not that easy. (laughs) And furthermore, I don't really believe that's what Paul has in mind in verse 29, The reasons for that is that there is absolutely no historical evidence for any practice of baptism for the dead among the Orthodox Church. There's there's absolutely no evidence that any sound church ever practiced baptism for the dead. In fact, there's really only two groups that, that kind of were known for practicing baptism for the dead, and both of them were heretical groups. The first was a second century group called the Marcionites that had so many problems, so many. That was the greatest heresy of the second century, really, was led by a guy named Marcion. And among their many 
awful, terrible practices was they would baptize people in the place of dead people, okay? And of course, you probably know that today, this is something that is practiced by the Mormon church, the church of Latter-day Saints. But there's absolutely no history of anyone practicing this within Christian orthodoxy, okay? Consequently, there's no evidence that this practice had already come about at the time that Paul is writing 1 Corinthians. You don't really hear about people being baptized by proxy for dead people until the 2nd century, and we know that this is being written in the 1st century. Okay, so um, the other problem, which I think is far more convincing as to why this is not what Paul is talking about, if there were people in the Corinthian church being baptized for dead people, it is absolutely shocking that Paul didn't severely rebuke such a horrendous distortion of Christian baptism. You know Paul, okay? We've been with Paul for a long time ministering to this church. This is the same guy, a couple chapters earlier, spends almost a whole chapter rebuking the church for their abuses in the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine that Paul would hear about such a practice going on in the church and not rebuke it with the strongest language? So I don't think that's what Paul is getting at here. Well, then there's the, the spiritual baptism view of this, which uh, there's different forms, there's different iterations, but uh, either they spiritualize the word baptism or they spiritualize the word dead. So one example of this is, uh, is that when he talks about baptism for the dead, he's not really talking about water baptism. He's connecting it with the, the verses that follow where he'll talk about suffering and persecution. And Paul is using this to refer to like a, a baptism of suffering. You know, we speak sometimes in, in that way. You know, we need a, we need a baptism of, of uh, holiness or we need a baptism of repentance, you know, meaning we need a lot of it. And so Paul's saying, I've got this baptism of suffering, baptism of persecution, right? Um, but again, that really doesn't seem to be the most compelling interpretation. Why? Well, because when Paul speaks of baptism in 1 Corinthians, he's always talking about baptism. And when he speaks of the dead in chapter 15, he talks about the dead a lot in chapter 15. And what does he always mean when he talks about the dead? People that have died. So it, it, it doesn't really give us enough contextual evidence to spiritualize this word here. So I, I think finally, the view that I've settled on is, is something I'm, I'll call it the, the literal orthodox view. And what I mean by that simply is that I take the words baptism and I take the word dead to be literal, but I don't assume that Paul is referring to anything that would contradict the orthodox view of scriptural baptism. So how do we explain that? Well, there's several plausible explanations. One uh, that I heard that's, that's compelling is, is that baptism for the dead kind of means that you know, Jesus gives this promise to the church that the church on earth would always exist until he comes again. And so there are baptized Christians who make up the church, but they die and they go to heaven. So Jesus saves new Christians and then they're baptized and they join the church. And so the church on earth always continues. That's one view. But the, the view that I think is most compelling because it fits the context. Remember, Paul is trying to argue for the resurrection here, right? I think that a great way to interpret this verse would be something like this that when we are baptized, when we receive baptism, when we follow Christ in believer's baptism and we identify with Christ, but also with the saints, and there's, there's kind of a dual identification that goes on, we do so at least in part in expectation of the joy and the rewards of the life to come. So in this view, the preposition for does not mean on behalf of, but because of, or on account of. We consider the, the saints that have gone on before us. We consider the, the testimonies. We consider the, the heroes from church history, for instance. And in part, we say, I want to identify with this great band of Christians. And I think the most convincing argument for such an interpretation is that it fits 
very neatly with the context of what Paul is doing in this passage. But ultimately, brothers and sisters, we just have to come to terms with the fact that we cannot know with absolute certainty what Paul has in mind when he uses this phrase. We can, we can have a good idea of what he doesn't mean, uh, but we ought not attempt, as the Mormons do, to build an entire doctrine upon this one obscure verse. Uh, let me help you with something. It is okay to read the Bible and to say, I just don't know about some passages. Now, some passages, you don't get that kind of liberty, okay? Um, but this one, you have a pass to say, I don't know, okay? And I think anybody that would say that they know with, with firm certainty is a little, been smelling a little too much of their own perfume, okay? It's, it's much safer to simply interpret it in a way that keeps with the context of the passage. And don't try to build a doctrine upon any verse of the Bible that can't be substantiated by the text. Okay, so if Paul, let's now assume uh, that I'm right, okay, (laughs) I always love to do that. If that's what Paul means, then what is the implication here of verse 29? Well, the implication here in verse 29 is that if there is no resurrection from the dead, the ordinance of baptism is altogether pointless. Why would anyone want to be united in baptism to a dead Christ? Why would you want to be identified with uh, people that have perished eternally? We can't sing that great hymn. The church is one foundation because we can't say the church is one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by spirit and the word. And then we can't say the church on earth hath union with God, the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. If there is no resurrection of the dead, we have no communion with them. We've not, we've not been a part of the same organism. But if there has been a resurrection of the dead, if there is going to be a resurrection of the dead, then think about how beautiful of a symbol baptism is. You have identified yourself not only personally with Jesus Christ, but you've identified yourself with the church, with the assembly that he built. You've identified yourself with his people You've you've entered into visibly, externally, the family of God. Now, I know spiritually, salvifically, you do that through faith, but I'm talking about externally. You've put on the wedding ring, so to speak, and you've owned him before the world. But furthermore, if there is no resurrection of the dead, the symbolism in baptism is a lie. The ordinance of baptism proclaims the gospel as a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Anybody remember? Probably not because you were underwater for some of it. Anybody remember? If, if I had the privilege of baptizing you, anybody remember what I said as I put you underwater and pulled you out of the water? I know the Haglers didn't because they, they just remembered it's cold, okay, because they decided to get baptized in late November in the Cumberland River. But what do I say? I say, I baptize you, my brother or my sister, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, buried with him in baptism as you go down into the water. And as you come out, I have the joy of saying, and raised with him to walk in newness of life. And I'll give you this one for free, no extra charge. That's why immersion is the only scriptural mode of baptism, because if you don't immerse, you ruin that symbolism. There's not a picture of the gospel. And so... If there is no resurrection of the dead, your baptism was a lie. If there is no resurrection of the dead, we were a false witness of Christ on that day when we baptized you, when you were baptized, when I was baptized. For you to reject the resurrection would be for you to renounce the sign that outwardly united you with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, number one, baptism. Pointless if there is no resurrection of the dead. And baptism is what? It's an outward act of our Christian practice that is dependent upon what we believe. Well, secondly, what else is pointless if there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul will go on to tell us in verses 30 through 32 that his beatings 
were pointless. And I know that this might not be the most sophisticated word for this heading, but it's, it's exactly what Paul is talking about in verses 30 through 32. It's exactly what he's talking about. In these verses, Paul is saying that if the resurrection is not true, then all of the suffering and all of the persecution that he put himself through was for nothing, was for naught. He wasted his life if there is no resurrection of the dead. Notice he says in verse 30, And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? If there is no resurrection and no life to come, then why on earth would Paul submit himself to the agony that he endured for the sake of Christ? Why would he hazard his own life for a worthless gospel that cannot secure an eternal salvation beyond the grave? If there is no resurrection, we have no reason to deny ourselves of the temporal pleasures of sin in hopes of a greater joy and greater rewards in the life to come. Why should we follow Christ and potentially lose our friends and our family and our reputation and our money and our social standing? Any of you lost any of those things because you've made a choice to follow Christ? So, you know, sometimes we, we like to emphasize, and it's true, we like to emphasize, well, we don't know anything about persecution because we live in the West. And there's truth to that. We, we haven't experienced perhaps the, what we think of when we think of violent martyrdom and persecution. Uh, but if you follow Christ, you do bear your cross. That's true of you. If you lost a friend because... You decided to follow Jesus and they didn't want any part of it? Has your family turned their back on you? Have you been ostracized from your previous social group? Have you lost out on financial opportunities? Maybe you didn't get hired because they didn't want that Bible thumper working there. Or maybe you, you said, I would really love that promotion, but I can't take it. I must deny it because it would interfere with what God calls me to do, worshiping him. Well, that is a form, brothers and sisters. It might not be a violent form of persecution, but that is a form of, of suffering for Christ, of bearing a reproach for Christ. And Paul says, all of that is worthless if there is no resurrection from the dead. You've needlessly denied yourself. I love what Charles Hodge said. He said, we are of all men most miserable and most stupid for living the way we live if there is no resurrection from the dead. Paul goes on and, and he says in verse 31, I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now what, is, what does that mean? I, I protest, so I argue from the standpoint of your rejoicing which I have in Christ. What Paul is saying here is, I boast in Christ for what he has done for you through me. Elsewhere, Paul refers to the churches as the seal of his apostleship. They're the proof of his ministry. Paul sees the, the joy that some of the Corinthians have. He sees he sees, though this church, with all of her problems, he sees that there are true believers in the church who, who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul sees that, it gives him great joy. By the way, let this be an encouragement to you. If Paul can rejoice over the Corinthians, you can rejoice over the weirdos in your church. I, I have no envy here. I, I You know, I, I have pastors who share with me some of the struggles and some of the counseling and some of the issues that they're facing. And I just think to myself, I am not jealous of you at all, brother. But if Paul can say, Corinthians, I look at you and I rejoice, we should be able to say, Christ's fellowship, I look at you and I rejoice. Nobody said we were perfect. Nobody said there weren't problems and things we needed to work through and that there will be in the future, but let's rejoice when we see what God 
is doing. And this verse really highlights the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. And nothing brings a pastor greater joy than to watch what the Lord is doing in the lives of the people in his church. And I can say amen to that. It thrills me to watch the Lord grow his people and sanctify his people through the ordinary means of grace, Sunday after Sunday, growing, learning, maturing. It's just such a joy, such a privilege to watch. That's why I feel sorry for these guys that they look at ministry like a career path and they they uproot every 18 months and they move to the next biggest church that can pay them $5,000 more a year and they never stick it out with a congregation. They're missing out on one of the greatest blessings of ministry. And I find great motivation and great encouragement to keep at it, to keep going by dwelling on the doctrinal truth of the resurrection. There's coming a day in which we will all be raised together to be with the Lord. The people I have the honor of ministering to every Lord's Day are the people I will spend eternity with. And if I never see the fruit of my ministry in this life, I pray to God and I look forward to seeing it on that day. But if there is no resurrection, the ministry of every gospel minister throughout all the history of the church was nothing more than temporal vanity. Paul is saying, because of the resurrection, I have great hope. Because of the resurrection, I rejoice in you. Paul did not believe he was just going to minister for 30, 40, 50 years and preach the word and, and, and labor for the people. And then he was just going to die and it was just going to be nothing. I'm so glad that's not true. I, I, I tell people, I've told some of you this, you know, I'll say uh, the salary of a pastor is not that great, but the retirement is out of this world. I believe that. That's why I'm here. Because my doctrine affects the way I live. Paul goes on and he says, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. And again, this is not spiritual. Paul is not just talking about I, I, I die to myself daily. No, Paul is saying I preach and I labor and I rejoice in what God is doing. But at the same time, I'm very aware of the fact that I expose myself to death Every day. As one brother said, on the Apostle Paul's to-do list every morning was, wake up, eat breakfast, write some letters, preach the gospel, and oh, by the way, Paul, you might die today. And Paul was 100% at peace with that because he believed in the doctrine of the resurrection. Paul's not afraid of his death. No, Paul faced death, and he faced death gladly because of what God was doing through him and what God had promised for him in the resurrection. As Polycarp was being led to his death, I don't think the thought going through his mind was, oh man, I should have just worshipped the Greek gods instead. As Jim Elliot lay dying in the Amazon, I don't think he was saying, rats, I should have been a plumber. No, these martyrs of the faith, these heroes of the faith who have suffered for the cause of Christ did so knowing that henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the resurrected Lord will give me on that day of my resurrection. So take my life. You can have it, world. Because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, verse 32, If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? 
Paul is writing 1 Corinthians from the city of Ephesus. And if you've read the book of Acts, then you know that Paul encountered immense opposition in that city. More than others. There were mobs of pagans in Ephesus that not only wanted Paul silenced and kicked out of the city, they wanted him dead. Paul figuratively speaks of the hardships he faced in Ephesus by comparing it to the Roman Colosseum. He says, I fought with beasts, but I I did so after the manner of men, not with literal beasts. Paul says, these Ephesians have such hatred for me and my ministry and the gospel that preaching among them is like being thrown into an arena with a pride of hungry lions. And we know this is... Uh, what he means. We know this is what he means because uh, nowhere in the book of Acts or in any of his epistles, including the several places where he gives a lengthy list of his sufferings, does he include being thrown into the Colosseum. And I've not done all of the historical data research, but I'm fairly certain that the survival rate was not that high. You don't get thrown into the Colosseum to come out and write about it. But if there's no resurrection, Paul says, what advantage do I have for enduring such great suffering? Why would I spend my life preaching the gospel to people that hate it? Why wouldn't I just go do something that people would like me for? No eternal rewards, no future reunion with my converts, no joy of seeing the Christ for whom I suffered? Paul suffered in vain if the dead rise not. And so he says, let us eat drink, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's actually a quote from Isaiah 22 in verse 13. The context is that the Assyrian invasion is coming and God is calling his people to turn back to him. But instead of repenting of their sins and returning to Jehovah, they just throw up their hands and they say, well, let's live it up. Let's throw a party. Let's have one more night of fun because the Assyrians are on their way and we're all going to die tomorrow anyways. Hopelessness. That's what a denial of the resurrection produces. Hopelessness. How many people in our day live by this exact same creed? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do you remember when hashtags first became a thing? And one of the first big hashtags that everybody was was, uh, doing was the, the hashtag YOLO. Remember that? It was, you know, that was on t-shirts. People would wear it on wristbands, you know. You only live once. That's what it stands for. And so the logic is, you only live once, so do whatever that thing is you really want to do before you die, because after you die, you'll never be able to fulfill your desires. What is, what is YOLO? YOLO is a doctrine, isn't it? It's a belief. And it's a belief that affects the way you live your life. But YOLO is a false doctrine. Because if you're a Christian, you don't only live once. You live and you die, and then comes the day that Christ returns and raises you from the dead, and you live again forever with Him. And what you believe will have a serious impact on the way you live. If you think that you only live once, then if you follow the the YOLO doctrine... It's a belief that causes you to live this life at the expense of the life to come. But the Christian doctrine of the resurrection is a belief that causes you to live this life in anticipation of the life to come. If you only live once, then the joy you have in this life comes to a final end when you die. But if you die to be risen again, then the joy that we Christians have in Christ comes to full flower 
on the day of our resurrection. The best is yet to come. Whatever height of joy and happiness and exuberance in your soul and your spirit that you could ever dream of having in this life will not even be comparable to the joy you will have on that day. And so live for that day, Paul says. Don't live for the hedonistic, sensual pleasures that you can scrunch up in this life. Live for that day. Paul says, my beatings, my suffering, my self-denial... It was all worth it because of the resurrection. Well, thirdly and lastly, verses 33 and 34, what else is pointless without the resurrection? Well, our behavior is pointless if there is no resurrection of the dead. Our Christian conduct, the way that we live our lives, our morals, our ethics, meaningless. There is no resurrection of the dead. Notice verse 33, famous verse. If you ask people, the average Christian, quote me some verses from 1 Corinthians, this might be one that they would quote. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Verse 33 is quoting a common proverb among the Greeks, actually. Uh, Gill says, this is a sentence taken out of Meander, a heathen poet, or Menander, a heathen poet, showing how dangerous is the conversation of evil men and what an influence bad principles communicated and imbibed have on the lives and practices of men. So we've gotten to this point in the message, and let me say that let's, let's deal with this. Let's, let's flesh this out. The message of verse 33 is quite simple. That's not the difficulty here. It's, it's not a hard verse to understand. It might be hard to swallow, but it's not a hard verse to understand. The message is quite simple. If you keep up close, intimate friendships and relationships with wicked and ungodly influences, they will corrupt your habits and your way of life. That's the message in verse 33. Evil is contagious. Sin spreads like a disease. The immediate context, of course, is what? Evil communications. Communications is just an old King James word for for companionship. It's deeper than just knowing someone or having an acquaintance with someone. It's it's, it's a, a real relationship with with mutual commitments and mutual emotional investments. And the, the immediate context is evil communications with those who deny the resurrection. See, Paul has proved that, that denying the resurrection leads to a carnal, careless, sensual lifestyle. And he's saying that, that those who deny the resurrection, they eat, they drink, for tomorrow they die. And if you keep hanging out with them, you'll eventually join them in their lifestyle. A lot of people think, well, you know, I know what I believe. My doctrine is solid, so I can give my ear to this false teacher. And Paul says, no, you can't. In fact, you may even be tempted to believe their false doctrines because of their licentious lifestyles. Well, I don't want to go to that conservative church that believes the doctrine of the resurrection because they preach that Christians ought to live holy and they ought to glorify God in their bodies. And they have all these these standards of righteousness because of the doctrine of the resurrection. No, I want to go down the street to that church that denies the resurrection because anything goes down there. They they indulge in the lusts of their flesh, and and that church has no problem with whatever vice I want to engage myself in. And all that church is doing is being consistent with their theology. Live it up if you don't believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. I wouldn't expect you to believe in holiness of life if you deny the doctrine of the resurrection. But notice that Paul has to begin by telling us not to be deceived. You know why we call it deception? Because nobody thinks it'll happen to them. Most of us believe that the age-old lie of, I can handle it, right? 
We say to ourselves, I'm going to start keeping company with, with evil, but it's okay because I'm firm in my convictions. I won't be influenced. And Paul says, if you believe that, you're deceiving yourself. If you seek bad company without good reason, then why do you believe that God will keep you from sin? See, the Bible is very clear. The Bible tells us to flee temptation. Not to presume upon the grace of God to miraculously deliver us at the 11th hour when we foolishly place our souls in great harm. Sin always takes you further than you wanted to go. And deception will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. See, not only are we deceived into thinking that we can withstand exposing ourselves to temptation, but when the temptation overtakes us, the deception worsens because then we convince ourselves that what we're doing is actually okay. Have you ever met someone who deceived themselves into choosing a path of unrighteousness and then they convinced themselves that their sin was actually all right? Well, I, I used to go to church, but then I started hanging out with these guys from work, and they were always inviting me fishing on Sunday, and you know, I, one Sunday turned into two, and two turned into three, and now I just don't go at all anymore. But it's okay, because you know what I realized? I can just worship God on my bass boat. Everything's fine. Well, I know the Bible says that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, but I mean, come on, everybody in my friend group does it. And it's okay because we're planning to get married anyways. It doesn't matter. When someone exposes themselves to sin and then proceeds to convince themselves that their sin is acceptable to God, that is self-deceit in the highest order. So Paul says, don't be deceived. You need the, the fellowship and the company of those who will lead you closer to God, not those who will draw you away. Don't spend time with people that are bad for your spiritual health. Don't seek the company of those who would lead you into a path of ungodliness. Now listen, this verse is obviously not saying that we can't have unbelieving friends, uh, that we have to live like monks and nuns, and we just have to shut off all contact with the outside world, and we have to go join the local Amish community. That's not what verse 20 or verse 33 is saying to us. In fact, we know that's not what verse 33 is saying to us because Paul says explicitly, chapter 5 and verse 10 of the same book of 1 Corinthians, that when he tells us not to have fellowship with the unrighteous, he doesn't mean with, with uh, you can't have any relationships with lost people at all because Paul says, for then must ye needs go out of the world, right? If, if, the, if the command was don't have any fellowship with any sinner, you could have fellowship with literally nobody. No, uh, this verse is not saying that we shouldn't have unbelieving friends, but it is to say that our best friends need to be those who share our biblical values for our own safety, for our own good. Make sure, brothers and sisters, that your inner circle, the people you most closely associate with, the people that you allow in, you know what I mean by that? You allow them in. You, you take their counsel. You, you allow them to have influence upon the way you think, the way you live, your philosophy. Make sure that there are people who love the Lord and who will help you to love the Lord. Some people say, well, Jesus, he ate with sinners. And to that I say three things. Yes, he did. But his closest friend group was made up of Christians who believed in him. Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50 even show us that his disciples were even closer to him than his own biological family. Remember, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers and your sister, they're here. Who are my brothers and my sisters? But they who do the will of the Father. His best friends were members 
of his church. I don't think that's an explicit command, but it is the fact of the matter. And he did eat with sinners, but uh, there's a couple of times in the Gospels where he dines with sinners, but how many times does he over and over again break bread with his disciples? Secondly, though, to that I would say, the purpose of Jesus associating with sinners was always to win them with the gospel. He didn't hang out with them to likewise participate in their sins. He associated himself with them and ministered to them and loved them so he could get them the good news of why he had come. Thirdly, you're not Jesus. You were not born without a sinful nature. No, you have a flesh. Even as a regenerate Christian, you have a flesh that is still very susceptible not only to temptations from without, which Jesus was also susceptible to, but you're also susceptible to evil, concupiscent, lustful desires from within, which he was not susceptible to. Do you think it's just a coincidence that a great number of young people raised in Christian homes go off to college and abandon the faith? Now, if they really abandoned the faith, they were never truly saved. I get that. But is it just a coincidence that that's when they apostatize? When they start to, you know, having lunch every day with the professor of, uh, of biology who shoves Darwin down their throat, and then they start to realize, Mom and Dad, you guys are a bunch of idiots. I'm going to say something. I debated on whether or not to say this. If you have children living in your home, your first responsibility as their parent is not to make sure that they get to experience the world and have a jamming social life. Your first responsibility is to shepherd their souls and shield them from evil and build within them a godly foundation so that when they are old, they will not depart from it. And a a little piece of me dies inside every time I hear of of a faithful family that... You know, they homeschooled or they sent their kid to a Christian school and, and then ninth grade comes around and they say, well, we're going to enroll them in the public high school down the road so that they can ex- have a social life at 14. We're, we're going we're to send them in there as missionaries. No, you're going to send them in there as sheep for the slaughter. I had a seventh grader say to me two weeks ago, she said, Mr. Glish, I really want to go to public school when I get to ninth grade because I know I'll have more friends and more experiences, but I know that this school is better for me spiritually. She's 13 in the seventh grade, and she understands exactly what Paul is saying. And and let me just be very clear. It's not a condemnation of any Christians who send their kids to public school. It's just an application that's so clear when we look at This principle of evil communications corrupt good manners. You cannot send your kids off to Rome and then be surprised when they act like Romans. And you think that that a 30-minute sermonette and coloring a a picture of Noah's Ark is going to keep them from the pervasive influence of evil in this world that want to gobble them up. Want to gobble them up. And our kid is little. Our children are, you know, one's in the womb One's two. And so, you know, it's not like this is a big fight for us every day, but it's something we think about every day because we do want to be balanced. We don't want to join the local Amish community. But we also want to be faithful in what God is calling us to do. You say to yourself, well, I, I know what I believe. I'm firm in my convictions. I can handle it. I won't succumb to temptation. And to that, I just plead with you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. The Bible says, can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned? And the answer to that is, no, he cannot. I, I love the story. If you don't know who Pastor Albert Martin is, you need to... Look him up. You need to listen to Pastor Al Martin sometime. Now he pastored Trinity Baptist Church in Montville, New Jersey for many years. And it was, the story was told of 
of Al Martin in the 60s. He, he did a lot of itinerant preaching, preached a lot of conferences, fairly well-known guy. And he would go to a hotel, and he would check into the hotel, and he would take the, the TV and the, the phone and all the electronics out of the room, and he would set them in the hallway. And a maid walked by and said, uh, Mr. Martin, what are you doing? And you know, if you know how serious he is all the time, I could just imagine him saying this to the maid, but he said something to the effect of, young ma'am, young young lady, I'm here to preach the word of God, and I don't need this week anything that would distract me or tempt me from serving my king. You say, well, that's a bit extreme, and I say, well, if that's what he felt in his heart was the thing that he should do in order to discipline himself for godliness, God bless you. God bless you. And I I want to approach this, and I I hope you see the struggle. I want to approach this with a pastoral heart because I know that this is hard. I grew up to two unbelieving, separated parents and a mother who spent her whole life working in the bar business. For several years of my childhood, I spent as much time in a bar as I did at home or at school. I had zero Christian friends. But I can say to you, by the grace of God, I can stand and testify that God is able to put people in your life that will become tremendous blessings to your soul as they influence you in the things of God. And I am blown away and brought to tears nearly every time I think about the men that God has put in my life to influence me and mentor me and guide me. God did that. And those are the people I want to be in my life. And I understand that some of you may have even had a much more difficult experience. I know that this this verse can be a great challenge to those who are saved later in life. Because you, you, you live for decades with very little or no Christian friends and godly influences, and then you God saves you, and it's great, but maybe someone can testify to this. For a little while, at the very beginning, your salvation kind of feels lonely. If you can identify with this, I just want to encourage you that God is able to bless your faithfulness to his word. He is able to place people in your life who love the Lord and love you and will become more precious to you than any relationship you may lose because of your faith. And this verse does not call you to to say, well, I'm a Christian now, so let me call up every friend that I've ever had and tell them I'm not having anything to do with you anymore. That's not at all what this verse is calling you to do. But it is saying, it is calling us to say, there's a new master in our life. There's a new number one in our life, and it's Jesus. And I can't keep up anything. I can't go on living in anything that would be a conflict with that first priority. The Christian life, though, is not a life of solitude. It's not a life void of any and all fun. When I want to have fun, I go and hang out with my brothers. And we have a lot of fun together. Because not only are they genuinely a joy to be around, I love the men of this church. I do. I love to hang out with them, love to talk with them, love to joke with them but they encourage me in the things of God. They they encourage me to keep living for Christ. Let me make a quick 21st century application. I know time is already gone here. We'll move on very quickly to verse 34. Don't keep bad company on social media. Don't spend hours a day reading gossip and filth on the internet. Don't give your eyes and your ears to hours and hours of unsavory content that doesn't bring glory to the Lord. It's so easy to get stuck in the the endless scroll loop. Do you know what happens when I give my evening to filth on YouTube? My Bible doesn't taste as good the next morning. I'm not seeking to be a legalist. Feel free to tell me if you think that I am. All that I'm saying is guard your heart. Be diligent to keep yourself unspotted from the world because James says that's what true religion is. So Paul says in verse 34, Awake, 
to righteousness. And this is the language that you would use of someone in a drunken stupor. Wake up, Corinthians. You've got people in the church denying the resurrection. It's leading to sin. It's leading to lives of unholiness. Awake to righteousness. And oh, how I love what Paul says next. And sin not. This is the apostolic discipleship program. Quit sinning. Amen. Close your Bibles. Let's go home. Quit it. In the words of uh, the theologian, biblical counselor, uh, Bob Newhart, stop it. Just stop it. Knock it off. That's what Paul is saying here. There's plenty of room for difference of opinion in the church. Okay, if if you have a different interpretation, if my interpretation of verse 29 didn't satisfy you and you hold to something else, amen, God bless you. But if you're denying the resurrection and you're, you're entertaining false doctrine that's leading you and others into lives of sin and unholiness, stop it. For some have not the knowledge of God. <laughs> I wish I had a whole nother hour just to camp out on that phrase. Paul ends this passage where he begins with doctrine. Why are there people in the church denying the resurrection and being corrupted in sin and unholiness? Because they don't know God. See, we live in a day when the only heresy is to say that there's such a thing as heresy. And so we see someone living for a prolonged time in a lifestyle that utterly rejects God and his word. And we don't want to come across as judgmental or offensive. That's the last thing we want to do. So we say things like, well, God knows their heart. Maybe they're just a little backslidden. And Paul says, no, those in the church denying the resurrection habitually going on in sin with no repentance, their problem is that they don't know God. That's what he says. We would say, Paul, what right do you have? I I would care to venture that most evangelical churches today would not like having the Apostle Paul as their pastor. (laughs) Behavior determines, or doctrine determines behavior. You don't know God, and you live like it. And he says, I speak this to your shame. He said earlier in the epistle in chapter 4, he says, I don't want to have to shame you, but then twice now in this epistle he has said, I speak this to your shame. You should know better, Corinthians. I preached the resurrection to you. I, I, I taught you these things. You should know better. And when there's rampant sin in, in the church, when there's heresy in the church, we should not be puffed up in pride and say, look how tolerant and accepting we are. We should be ashamed of ourselves. See, the reason why we should be ashamed of ourselves is because if that's going on in the church, it means that we're not doing very much preaching and thinking and emphasizing about who God is. The the legalist thinks that the way you maintain holiness in a church is by making a big long list of do's and don'ts and you enforce all of these extra biblical rules to keep everyone in line. Well, that's a good way to make Pharisees, but that's about all it's good for. The way to maintain sound doctrine in a church, the way to maintain personal holiness in a church is to make much of who God is. To preach a lot about God to talk a lot about God, to work our way through books of the Bible that God has written to us and to put God at the center of everything we do. I recently heard a pastor, he was asked a question. Someone said, I feel like things at my church are casual and irreverent. And there's there's just so so many things going on in the church that are just casual. What kind of principles or rules should we enforce to... Uh, to, to guard against those things. And the answer was brilliant. He said, you don't need to enforce any new rules. You just need to do more preaching about how God is not casual and how God is not reverent. And it might take a little bit longer, but if they start believing it, they'll quit doing the casual, irreverent behavior. See, we, we want the easy route. We want the, let's just put a rule up and ban it. But the Bible says, no, let's preach about God. Let's change the way we believe and the way we think so that we want to do that which is right. 
Everything stems from what we believe about God. A.W. Tozer was right when he said in the opening line of his most famous book, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. So, brothers and sisters, I ask you, what do you think about him? What do you believe about who he is? I hope you believe that he's the sovereign creator that made you and that he made you to enjoy him and glorify him forever and that it was because of your sin that your relationship with him was ruined and that because he is holy, 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 you, a sinner, could never stand in his presence. But because this holy and just God is also gracious, loving, and merciful, he sent his son to die for you on the cross and The Son of God, who is God, accomplished salvation on Calvary's cross. He died. He was buried. And praise God, he rose again the third day. And all those who place their faith in him will receive his salvation and will one day be raised from the dead to be with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. Do you believe that? Amen. Well, if you believe that, it will radically change the way you live because doctrine governs practice. Pray with me. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for this wonderful text. And Lord, for these parameters, these guideposts, they call us to examine ourselves. And sometimes that's not a comfortable thing to do. I was confronted with my own sin as I studied through this text. I don't stand here preaching as one who has mastered these things, but as one who is in the fight alongside my brothers and sisters. Oh God, give us grace to believe what is right and to live what is right, that we might glorify you in our thoughts and our deeds until Christ comes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.